Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. Today, I'd like to share with you some excerpts from our most recent issue of Parabola, The Wild, and I'll begin with the foreword to the issue from editor Tracy Cochran. Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? The beloved poet Mary Oliver posed this question in the poem The Summer Day. It became a call to attention for countless appreciative readers long before her death earlier this year. What is the wild and what makes it precious? Our summer 2019 issue on the theme of the wild commemorates the extraordinary life and spirit of Oliver. It is an enduring honor to us that for years she contributed poetry to these pages. The root of the word wild, which comes from the Old English and Germanic languages, is self-determining, writes Eleanor O'Hanlon in her interview with Staffan Vidstrand, widely recognized as one of the world's most influential wildlife photographers. His photograph is on our cover and a founder of Rewilding Europe, an innovative conservation project. Our relationship with the natural world has always been and must again become part of our identity, Vidstrand says here. The articles in this issue explore in various ways how this can be so. From a revealing visit to the Amazon rainforest, to dwelling in a tower in the wilderness in the Great Salt Marsh of the northeastern United States, from a mindful trip to the movies, to composer Lawrence Rosenthal's revelatory trip on LSD, in stories from ancient times to the present, this issue reveals that attention is the key to understanding and preserving our wild nature, within and without. Attention is the beginning of devotion, wrote Mary Oliver, who understood that we cannot save what we do not love. In this issue, the poet Lisa Starr, a close friend who was with Oliver in her final days, describes Oliver finding a snapping turtle in the city and releasing it in a pond, later writing, because nothing is important except that the great and cruel mystery of the world, of which this is a part, not be denied. The work of rewilding nature, including our own nature, involves letting go, allowing ourselves to glimpse our part in a greater whole. May this issue serve that aim. Let's look now at the essay, Three Lessons from the Amazon Rainforest by Ocean Malandra. In the first chapter of his spiritual classic, Savannah, The Realization of Life, Indian poet, philosopher, and Nobelist Rabindranath Tagore makes the point that much of the malaise affecting modern humanity is based in our disconnection from the primeval forests that once nurtured us thousands of years ago. He claims that the forest is the original monastery, the source of true spiritual wisdom, the best place to reconnect and restore any lost relationship between humanity and natural law. To realize this great harmony between man's spirit and the spirit of the world was the endeavor of the forest-dwelling sages of ancient India. As a freelance writer who has spent much of the last decade in various parts of the Amazon rainforest, the largest and most biodiverse primeval tropical forest in the world, I want to testify to the wisdom that this marvel contains. Although the global south in general is often overlooked as a source of spiritual knowledge in favor of the east and west because it produces few books, organized traditions, or other artifacts like we are used to examining, the Amazon itself is the living teacher here. It is the book, the tradition, and the artifact all in one. 
more dazzling than any representation could be. Here are three lessons from the Amazon rainforest that restore the great harmony that we have lost. I call them marriages because each one is a union, the root meaning of the word yoga, which is the true subject of Tagore's book and the ultimate goal of humanity. The marriage of civilization and nature. Although the idea of an untouched wilderness still remains relatively synonymous with the Amazon rainforest in the popular imagination, slews of studies released over the last couple of decades show that the area was once home to dense urban societies that were just as complex as European civilizations at the time. A 2008 paper published by the University of Florida states that these Amazonian urban areas were on the same scale as your average medieval town and Greek polis or city-state. These walled urban settlements, each with roads leading out following the cardinal directions, were also connected to each other in a feat of regional planning that spread out over large areas of the Amazon in what the researchers describe as a galactic pattern. Unlike Europeans, however, these ancient Amazonians did not destroy the forest systems around them. They did the opposite. They enhanced them. Study after study shows that much of what we like to consider pristine rainforest in the Amazon was actually planted and cultivated by humans. The reason superfood-loaded trees like acai, Brazil nuts, and even chocolate are so common in the Amazon is because they were tended by these civilizations, so much so that when researchers look now for evidence of human settlement, they look for density of these trees. The Amazon rainforest is not really a wilderness at all. It is a garden. When the first European explorers arrived, they were so blown away by the garden cities of the Amazon that many thought they had found the Garden of Eden and drew maps that placed the rainforest at the center of the world. I have seen these maps at the Ethnographic Museum in Leticia, Colombia, a bustling small town on the banks of the serpentine Amazon River. Nude as Adam and Eve, the ancient Amazonians dwelt among a superabundance of healthy fruits, nuts, and medicinal plants much of it planted and maintained by generation after generation, and a co-evolution that leaves modern researchers trying to figure out where civilization leaves off and wilderness begins. In the ancient Amazon, no such distinction existed. The human-nature dichotomy appears to be real in a country like the U.S., in part because our national parks, the best examples of pure nature that we have, were forcibly cleared of their native inhabitants by early so-called environmentalists to create pristine areas of untouched wilderness. Our activity is separate from that of nature and worse detrimental to it. Even today, prominent ecological voices like biologist E.O. Wilson call for setting aside half of the earth for nature apart from humans in order to save it. But the Amazon rainforest shows that civilization and nature are not really at odds and illuminates a potential for a returned state of paradise on earth if we can harmonize the two. The marriage of science and religion. Some of the techniques developed by the ancient Amazonians are now recognized as potential game changers for the global challenges facing humanity. Agroforestry, for example, in which food-bearing trees are used to provide long-term crops in place of the annual monoculture crops that industrial agriculture relies on, can produce high-quality food items and reforest the world at the same time, reversing global warming, regenerating damaged ecosystems, and turning around species decline in the process. 
Amazon civilizations of yore also developed a kind of super fertile permaculture soil called terra preta, or black earth, created from their burned earthenware goods in an airtight cycle of recycling and renewal that produced no waste or pollution and transformed the nutrient-less white sands of the jungle into a micro-rich living medium to grow their food forest on. Modern civilization is destroying the natural world even though our technology is so advanced that we have sent men to the moon and connected the entire globe through the internet and media. Something is fundamentally wrong, and that something is simple and obvious. It is that our science is driven by economic systems, like capitalism or communism, not by spiritual understanding. What's so obviously absent in the material expression of the modern world, as Martin Luther King Jr. pointed out in his 1964 Nobel Prize lecture, is spirituality. Yet in spite of these spectacular strides in science and technology, and still unlimited ones to come, something basic is missing. There is a sort of poverty of the spirit which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. Indigenous Amazonian societies see things from a shamanic perspective. While shamanism is often described as the belief in various spirits and other abstractions, a more concise and truthful definition is that it is the marriage of science and spirituality. When shamanic societies talk about spirits, they're referring to the unconditioned metaphysical potential behind physical forms. Holding sacred the spirit of water, for example, ensures that all actions taken will never harm any of the physical living manifestations of that spirit, whether they are streams, rivers, or oceans. The same goes for the spirits of plants, animals, air, etc. Shamanism harmonizes humanity with the greater world, the goal of Tagore's forest-dwelling sages of ancient India. Although we don't know exactly what the ancient Amazonians believed, as Jesus pointed out, we can judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. The Amazon rainforest is possibly the greatest work of human design the world has ever seen. Only a high level of consciousness could have produced it. The reason why we in the West haven't yet created anything that resembles the food and medicine-rich galactic garden cities of the ancient Amazon, where human behavior enriches both the natural world and society, is that our scientific expression is not yet driven by spirituality. Fortunately, the Amazon has also produced an advanced technology born of the shamanistic marriage of science and spirituality that addresses that challenge. The Marriage of Humanity and the Cosmos by now everyone has heard of ayahuasca, the potent hallucinogenic brew that is widely consumed by many but not all indigenous Amazon societies and has made serious inroads into modern global culture. Brazil has spawned a handful of churches that use ayahuasca as a sacrament, several of these now operating in dozens of different countries around the world. Peru has seen an explosion in ayahuasca tourism from mountain high Cusco to the landlocked Amazonian island city of Iquitos. Ayahuasca centers have opened in places like Hawaii, Costa Rica, and most recently and amid televised dramatics, even in Kentucky. The medicine is now a principal player in psychedelic research. Much of this research focuses in on ayahuasca's ability to help people struggling with modern health epidemics like addiction, PTSD, and depression, the latter now the most common form of disability on earth, according to the World Health Organization. Psychedelic substances are able to relieve the symptoms of and often turn around maladies like these because they dissolve the sense of self or I distinct from the rest of the world, 
According to a paper published in the Journal of Neuroscience of Consciousness in 2017 by researchers at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Unlike purely chemical psychedelics, however, ayahuasca does not produce just visions, but also strong gut reactions, instigating physical nausea as it probes the psyche, getting stuck in any places where hatred, anger, fear, or other negative emotions reside. This marriage of the mind and body is the essential foundation for fully realizing the third and highest aspect of ourselves, the spirit. Only a cosmic consciousness can produce a civilization where the laws of heaven are manifest on physical earth. While ayahuasca does not give this consciousness outright, it does show that it already exists within us and indicates what must change in order to dwell in that ecstatic state. It is a teacher plant, a gift from the ancient Amazonians, that can be used in tandem with other spiritual practices, hopefully leading to blurring of the line between civilization and nature to paradise on earth. I'd like to share with you now two tales of the wild that I collected from uh, various sources for this issue. The first is a fairy tale that has appeared in several cultures, uh, most famously in the Brothers Grimm collections called the Seven Swans. Once there was a king whose kingdom was a great forest. This king was a widower with one daughter and seven sons, and his wife had died as she bore their last child. Because he was lonely and wished for a mother for his children, the king remarried quickly. His new wife, however, was not what she seemed. Hoping to secure the kingdom for her own future children, she was determined to get rid of the king's existing heirs. Because she was an enchantress, this was not a difficult task. She simply took the children down to the river one day, and as they swam, she whispered a spell. Her magic spread through the water, and every child it reached turned into a swan. The king's daughter, though, stood only at the river's edge. She saw what was happening to her brothers, and she scrambled out of the river, hiding behind a tree. The queen watched the flock of swans fly away, and she returned to the castle, content. The princess, too, watched her brothers fly away. She was determined to save them, and she knew her home was no longer safe, so she struck out into the great wild forest that surrounded the river, following the direction that the swans had flown. As night fell, the princess found a cave where she could safely rest. Before she fell asleep, she said a prayer, asking for help in finding her brothers and breaking her stepmother's spell. A forest goddess appeared in her dreams that night, a tall, fierce woman riding a boar, and she told the princess how to save her brothers. You must stay in the wilderness for seven years, and in that time you must gather nettles and spin them into enough yarn to knit seven shirts. Throw them over your brothers, and they will return to their human forms. But all the time that you are gathering and spinning and knitting, you must not use your human voice at all, for it is no human magic I give you now, but wild magic. The princess woke in silence and went out to gather nettles. The first year was the hardest, for her hands were soft and the nettles stung badly, and she could not even cry out in pain. But as the months passed, her hands grew calloused and hard, and her tongue grew used to silence. She found the forest had its own voice when she made herself quiet enough to listen. Every summer, her brothers came back to the river, and they spent the warm season by her side before flying south for the winter. 
And every year, working as hard as she could, the princess made just enough yarn for one shirt. At the end of the seventh winter, she had grown into a young woman. One day, a prince from a neighboring kingdom rode past her cave on his own journey through the wilderness. When they saw each other, they fell in love at once. And even though the princess could not speak, when the prince asked her to come home with him and be his wife, she smiled and took his hand. The prince's people, though, found his new fiancé's silence eerie. Too, she had unlearned many human ways during her seven years in the wilderness, and her movements and expressions were almost those of a wild animal. And then there was the knitting she guarded as if her life depended on it, more fiercely than anyone should care for such a homespun thing. It was not long before a rumor began to spread that she was a witch. The prince never doubted her, but he begged her to say just one word to his people, to reassure them and deny their accusations. The princess wept silently, but she could not give up her chance to save her brothers. One night in spring, the people stormed the castle and brought the princess out to be burned as a witch. Even as they piled the wood around her stake, the princess held on to the six shirts she had made. As the first torch was set to the wood, she kept knitting the final sleeve and the final shirt that remained unfinished. And as the smoke began to rise around her, seven swans appeared in the sky. They circled around the princess, hissing and using their great wings to beat back the people around her. The princess threw a shirt over each of the swans, and as the fabric settled over white necks and wings, the swans turned once more to human boys, most of them now grown to men. Only the youngest brother, who had received the shirt with one unfinished sleeve, kept any sign of his time as a swan. He had one arm and one wing. The princess used her voice again at last to tell the people all that had befallen her family. The truth rang in every note of her voice. She was reunited with her prince, and when the brothers returned home, they learned that their stepmother had passed away without leaving an heir. The princess married her prince and became a great queen, and her brothers stayed with their father the king and comforted him in his old age. And in autumn, the youngest of them felt the pull of the wilderness in his still hollow bones, and he followed its song to the south. The other tale of the wild that I'd like to share with you is a Roman myth of Romulus and Remus. One night, a priestess named Rhea Silvia went walking in a sacred grove dedicated to the god Mars. She met the god himself inside the grove, and they shared a tryst. Nine months later, she gave birth to twin boys named Romulus and Remus. The local king heard that two sons of the god of war had been born to a priestess, and he feared that the children would threaten his throne. He ordered them to be killed. With her sister priestesses, Rhea Silvia left her babies at the banks of the river Tiber and said a prayer to the gods to take care of them. The priestesses returned, swearing to the king that they had abandoned the boys to die. The god of the river heard Rhea Silvia's prayers and called a mother wolf to the boy's side. The wolf had birthed a small litter that year, and she had plenty of milk. The wolf nursed Romulus and Remus, and the river god watched over them, calling other animals to their aid whenever necessary. Eventually, the god called a gentle shepherd named Faustulus to the river, and he took in the growing boys as his own sons. Romulus and Remus grew up believing that they were only shepherds, although their beauty and athleticism suggested to all who met them that they could easily be demigods. 
As young men, Romulus and Remus shared an interest in politics that led to their becoming involved in a local dispute. Remus was arrested and brought before the king, who instantly saw his resemblance to Rhea Silvia and suspected his true identity. Romulus gathered with other dissenters and set out to rescue his brother. After finding Remus, the group sought sanctuary in the nearest temple. There they found Rhea Silvia, who was still a powerful priestess, and Romulus and Remus learned the story of their birth. Romulus and Remus worked together with the other dissenters and overthrew the king. But when they were offered the ruling of the country themselves, they declined, helping to install a just leader. Romulus and Remus wanted to found their own city on the river where they'd grown up. They returned to the very place on the riverbank where their mother had left them as babies. Seven hills surrounded that spot. Romulus and Remus argued at length about which hill to choose for the founding of their city. When they could not agree, they decided to pray to the gods for a sign. Just then, six birds flew over the hill Remus had chosen. He smiled, believing his choice was favored. A moment later, twelve birds flew over Romulus's hill, and Romulus laughed. The city they founded was Rome, which became one of the greatest cities in the history of all the world. But Rome itself was born from wilderness, from two men who looked to birds for divine messages, men who had been two shepherd boys, and before that two babies who nursed from a wolf, and before that their parents had conceived them under the trees of a sacred grove. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. We'd also love to connect with you on social media where we have active communities on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Remember that thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for today comes from Henry David Thoreau, who said, In wildness is the preservation of the world. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>